as you know, we are here in the evenings going through a uh, series entitled A Chronological Look at the Birth of the Savior. This is our fifth time uh, together in the subject, and I have at least one, maybe two more. I don't know. We'll see how the Lord directs. Uh, as we look at Christ, again, there's no greater person in the entire world who we could spend our time talking about, right? Contemplating, thinking about, continuing to learn more about him and encouraging each other in our faith and growing in our love for him. The story of the person of Jesus Christ is unlike any other because he's unlike any other person. The story begins before time, before the beginning, as the triune nature of God has always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, who created us, created the world and everything that's in it. And the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he created them with the intent that they would be a part of and fill a world uh, full of people who would know him and love him, walk in fellowship with God's sin, without sin, with no shame, no guilt, no fear, a people of perfection. But obviously that's not the way the story turned out. Uh, God knew that would happen. He knew that Adam and Eve would in time rebel against him. Uh, they would bring, therefore, upon themselves heartache and destruction and death, both physically and spiritually, which would cause them to be separated from him and separated from the beautiful, perfect relationship that he intended for man to have. And now shame and guilt and fear have come flooding in where previously there was love and joy and peace uh, that resided amongst men. We also know that God in his infinite wisdom, because he knew that was going to happen, in his infinite uh, kindness and mercy determined before the foundation of the world that he would send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, into the fallen world to redeem it, uh, to be born as a baby, to grow into a man, to lay down his life as the final, full, and complete sacrifice for those who would repent and place their faith upon him as their Savior. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at that story. Uh, again, the one who would come, the one whom God would send, the one who would restore the broken relationship caused by sin. And again, the promise was that God would step from uh, eternity into time, uh, that he'd put on our humanity, he'd live among us and die for us, paying the penalty for our sin, then ultimately defeat death, restoring that perfect righteousness in our relationship to God, uh, providing for us eternal life. So we began before the beginning, if you remember the first time way back, when we looked at the pre-existence of the person of Christ, and then we went to the genealogies of Christ out of, out of the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. We saw the human origin of the divine one who stepped into time again, fully God, fully man, who, again, is the only one who can fulfill all the promises that God made through uh, uh, Abraham and, and David, uh, the one who could take our penalty upon himself and pay that, perfect, uh, pay that penalty as the perfect sacrifice. We saw in uh, Matthew that... Uh, uh, Jesus has the legal line through his legal guardian, Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, back to Abraham, forward to King David through Solomon uh, to show the legal uh, right to the throne of David so he can possess that title, King of Israel. Uh, from Luke, we saw the genealogy from Adam to David through Nathan the Mary of, uh, uh, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, which again links uh, physically the bloodline to David, and again, that being through his mother Mary. So, again, Jesus is the promised king, the Messiah, fulfills all the Old Testament requirements. He uh, comes from the line of Abraham and David as his uh, earthly legal father. Uh, Joseph, on his side, gives him the title to the throne, and his physical mother, uh, Mary, uh, links him by blood back to King David. So, again, he's the one who fulfills all these promises that God has made in the Old Testament. Last couple of times, we look extensively at the end of Luke chapter 1. It's known as Zechariah's Song of Salvation. It was, again, Zechariah taking his son, who's just been born by miraculous uh, uh, conception uh, in his old age. Uh, John the Baptist, he's eight days old. 
Uh, he, God tells uh, John, or Zacharias that John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. Therefore, Zacharias breaks forth in songs of praise and blessing for God because he understands the Old Testament. Uh, he understands that all the covenantal promises that God has made for the nation or with the nation of Israel for their salvation and the blessing of the world is about to come into fruition because the forerunner, that being John the Baptist, has stepped onto the scene, which means the Messiah is not very far behind. The Messiah is also coming. It, it was a tremendous study. I hope you were part of that. Um, I put it together, and I thought it was good, not because of what I said, but I just thought the whole material was just tremendous. To really stop and look at all those covenants together, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. Uh, and, and listen, just think about a- Abrahamic covenant that God has a fountain or a river of blessing to men. And that's really what the Abrahamic covenant is about. It's about God's blessing to the world. And then the Davidic covenant, the promise that he's going to set his king over the earth, that he has a a plan. He's going to bring the righteous branch of David who will come and sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, and his kingdom will have no end. You know what? The world that we're watching now is a world of wicked men, but they're not in charge. And you can read it everywhere. Uh, Psalm 2, why are, the age, why are the nations in rage? You know, because they're rejecting God. That's really what you're seeing. And, and we who know God have confidence in the fact that God's word is absolutely true in everything that he says. Therefore, he will set his king upon David's throne, and he will reign in time, and he'll reign forever. And then we saw the promise of the new covenant, which again was a promise to change our hard hearts so that we might actually obey God, that we might have God's Holy Spirit planted within us, that we might be regenerated from the inside out, that he, God, might cause us to be born again, provide for us uh, who repent and believe forgiveness of sin, right? That we might have new life, a renewed relationship with God, that which has been lost because of the fall. I mean, it's just absolutely tremendous have all those covenants come together in that most magnificent section of Scripture in Luke uh, chapter 1, all the covenantal promises of God. A lot of material. I hope you found it encouraging because that's why it's there. That's what it was meant to be, to be encouragement to us to be uh, to give us hope uh, that God because of his tender mercy desires to save men deep down inside of God's nature deep down inside of his character he loves fallen sinners he desires to be compassionate to men he desires to so to show uh, favor towards sinners who are in rebellion against them he desires to be gracious to be merciful because he's full of compassion and he wants to relieve our misery uh, again, if he didn't, he would never have sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. If he just wanted to judge sin, to wipe it out, he could have done that from a distance. But he sent Christ into the world because he's compassionate and merciful. And as long as we have life, that's the message that we give. And most, most importantly, in a world that we're all seeing, you know, the, the veneer's done, gone off the top of the table, <clears throat> right? It, it's not oak, it's a piece of plywood with a pin. Had a thin piece of stuff on top of it, but it's just junk wood, right? I mean, we can see the whole thing falling apart. It's because, again, men live in darkness. They live in ideological fortresses, the lies of the devil, and we're the only people on the planet that know the truth. So we have the privilege of telling people the truth to encourage them that God is for them. I just marvel at that phraseology, the tender mercy of our God, over and over again, every time I read it. So God wants to show favor to men. God wants to be gracious. He wants to be merciful. He wants to relieve our miseries that, again, sin has caused us to, because of Adam's rebellion, right? <clears throat> and again, the Bible says incredibly that God has done all this that while we were yet sinners, right? Christ died for us. So it's an incredible story. It's a wonderful story. Uh, it's uh, true, obviously, that uh, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God born as a man who lived uh, as a man. 
uh, so that he can come stand in our place, take the stroke, stroke that was due us, uh, he being the substitute for our sin, him bearing the penalty so that we won't have to bear the penalty because we can't. I mean, the only penalty that we could bear is eternal judgment, right? The only one who could come and take care of our sin in time that provides us life is the person of Jesus Christ. So he provides us right standing because he is the righteous one, and we have forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, through the substitute, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the truth. Uh, in, our, in our study, however, the thing that we've not uh, looked at is the actual birth of the Savior, right? We've looked at everything around it. So tonight, obviously, we have to take our Bibles, and if you've not done it already, turn to... Matthew chapter 1, because we need to look at the birth of the Savior. Now, <clears throat> this is a familiar material. And one of the problems with familiar material is, here you go, write this one down, it's too familiar, right? I already know that, right? Just like this morning, how many times you read through John 5? And how many, we walked out of here this morning and go, wow, I read through John 5 a number of times, but I really didn't see it that way before, right? And that's the way it is when you sit and really think about the Bible. This is familiar material, um, uh, and familiarity uh, causes us to run over the top of it and not to see all that's there. And, and I'm going to say it a couple times, but I'll say it right at the beginning. This is a real-world situation, a, a real-world world story uh, that I think we have to bring that to bear when we read it so that we're not just reading. This is not like picking up your manual on trying to figure out how to use your computer, right? I mean, this this is this is... Uh, narrative that has to do with people's lives, right? So it's full of truth and full of emotion and full of real issues and problems that you, people would have to face going through these kinds of situations. All right, verse uh, 18, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child by the Holy Spirit. The birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. The word birth there is Genesis which means origin. It's the same word that Matthew used back up in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. Genealogy, Genesis. Right? So the first uh, 17 verses, Matthew gives the Genesis or the genealogy uh, of Jesus Christ from the human side. And what you're going to get here in Matthew uh, 18, verse 18, is uh, the Genesis or the genealogy of Jesus Christ from the divine side because he's been conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now again, it's probably worth mentioning that when we speak of the birth of Jesus Christ, we realize the Bible says that he is fully God, fully man. He didn't have a human father. He was conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He did have a human mother. And the birth of Jesus really is not his beginning, but rather it's his incarnation. It's uh, It's God putting on flesh. The one who existed before the beginning, before time, the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, has stepped into time and taken on our human nature. He is the God-man. And the divine element within him keeps him from being polluted by sin, as the divine cannot receive pollution from sin. So again, Jesus was a man with two natures, both human and divine. In his humanity, he could relate to us as human beings. In his divinity, he alone can save us from our sins. Two natures, one person, possessing all the full power of deity, perfectly sinless, yet a man. That's why it says, or Paul says in the book of Romans, interesting, says Romans 8, 3 says, for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son, here it is, in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. It's a very intentional phrase by Paul there in Romans 8, that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the flesh because he was a true man, but it was only in the likeness of sinful flesh, not sinful flesh, 
because you have perfect God and perfect man together in one person, and he is without sin. Right? So he put on his, our humanity to identify with us. And it's a tremendous concept. Uh, again, when you think of the mercy of God and the love of God, that God, who is from all eternity, would condescend, step into time, that he would unite himself with our nature in order that he might redeem us, in order that he might save us from our sin. So this really, in, in Matthew, although familiar, it's really an amazing portion of Scripture because Jesus is coming. Uh, he has come, right? Jesus, who's revealed as a man among men, was born. He's going to live a life. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. Yet it's very clear that he's unlike any other man who's ever existed. He lives an entirely sinless life. An entirely sinless life. Now, I don't know how that works out in your home, but he's the one you don't have to correct. Right? He's doing everything you ask. He's the one who made an all-toning sacrifice for sin right? upon Calvary's cross. He's the one who demonstrated uh, the fact that he was, again, the Son of God. We saw it this morning. Uh, and he demonstrated most uh, magnificently by his triumphal resurrection from the dead because death could not hold him captive. And forever throughout eternity future, the second person of the Trinity is going to forever be the eternal God-man. As Christ has forever united himself with mankind. That, that's an amazing truth right there. An amazing thought that God has married man, if you will. The marriage of God and man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we talked about this morning, right? There's a marriage, there's a bride that needs to be redeemed, all right? And God, out of his love, has sent his son to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, out of his love, is in the process of redeeming that bride. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, now betrothed means to be promised in marriage, and when his mother Mary was espoused, it says in the authorized version. The idea behind betrothals are foreign to us. We don't do betrothals uh, here in this uh, culture. Uh, and it really isn't the same thing as an engagement. In the Jewish mind, a betrothal was much more of a serious situation, much more of a binding situation. Basically, a Hebrew marriage consisted of two stages. First stage was a legal contract between the two families, a contract promising marriage. So Jacob, who's the father of a uh, Joseph and Eli, who's the father of Mary, contracted for marriage of their children. It was a binding contract, the first stage, the couple. In the first stage of the contract, the couple were considered illegally married. That's why when you read uh, the text here during the betrothal period, Joseph is regarded as Mary's husband, verse 19, and, and, uh, and uh, Mary as Joseph's wife in verse 20, even though they did not live together, even though there was no physical contact between the two. Now, in this betrothal period, <clears throat> if you violated the marriage vow, you had to be divorced in an official sense. Again, uh, in the betrothal, people were considered legally married. Again, although there's no physical relationship whatsoever between them. Now, usually the betrothal period lasted somewhere up to 12 months. Some writers say six, some say nine, some say 12. Those are important numbers because those numbers have to do with something on a biological level, right? So those numbers uh, establish fidelity. If a girl became pregnant during this betrothal period, Obviously, her moral uh, character was called into question, but so was the man's. So if anyone was unfaithful, if there's any kind of problems during this betrothal period, uh, anything would come to the surface, uh, 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 those issues were addressed. At the end of the betrothal period came the actual wedding. It lasted for about a week, and then the normal physical consummation of the marriage relationship occurred. But when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, so again, before the marriage was legally consummated and there was any physical contact between the two, the text says she was found to be with child. Now, I can't under uh, or overestimate how big of a problem that is, right? I mean, that's a problem. 
And it's quite a serious problem for Joseph. Because before they come together physically, Joseph comes to the realization that Mary is pregnant and he's not the father. You know, I've been thinking about this all week, that we have a hard time with this story because, I mean, the story is a little bit spectacular, well, probably more than a little bit spectacular, but just culturally, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore because we don't have this kind of standard of righteousness. This is a problem. Now, in our culture, this is normal for a, a husband or people who aren't married to have children together, but in this culture, this is a quite serious problem. Joseph has come to the realization that Mary's pregnant he's not the father. So again, because it's a real-world situation, this whole situation must have broken his heart because he loved Mary. And all of the attendant emotional anguishes and pains and that would come from a violation of trust, of infidelity on the part of the woman whom he loved had to have been there. It had to be there in full force with all the weight on his heart, breaking his heart. It must have crushed him. I mean, he must have been thinking, how in the world could she have done this to me? How could she have been so unfaithful to me? Why why has she destroyed our relationship, and what am I going to do? So he comes to a decision, verse 19. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, put her away secret, decided to put her away secretly. Joseph, it says, is a righteous man. We don't know a lot about Joseph biblically. We're not told much about him. He must have been a kind man, a good man, but we know he's a righteous man. He's described elsewhere as a carpenter. Some suggest that uh, entails not only the ability to work with wood, but perhaps the ability to, uh, of being a mason. Maybe he was a house builder, not just a chair builder, but maybe he built houses. He could use both skills. Bible scholars suggest that both uh, Joseph and Mary were young, probably in their teens, because that's according to the custom of the day when marriages were arranged. But we do know the text tells us that Joseph is a righteous man. And that's tremendously important. It's a man, he's a man of principle. He's a man who lived his life according to the word of God and the will of God. A man who took very seriously the breaking of the vow, the marriage vow. He was a man who knew that God's standard of purity. He knew God's standard of purity, and he knew that God places a high value on purity, and that God places a high value on virginity. That it's a sacred thing. It's something not to be trifled with. Again, a concept we've completely lost in the culture in which we live. But he loved Mary. And he's really struggling in his heart. He has a conflict with the righteous standards of God and his love for the woman. Again, something that we miss, I think, in our culture and maybe even in a lot of the Christian culture because I don't know that we think to the depth of the level of the righteousness of God, protecting the righteousness of God, proclaiming the righteousness of God always. He did. He understood the righteousness of God. He understood the standard under the Old Testament when a woman was found not to be a virgin or pregnant uh, before being married, that that uh, woman would suffer the, pa- the punishment of death, according to Deuteronomy 22. So again, Joseph's heart had to have been broken. Mary, whom he loved, was pregnant. He thought he'd known her character. He thought he knew all about her. But most certainly the thing that he did know is he knew the righteous standards of God. He's a righteous man. He's a kind-hearted man. And the text said he did not want to disgrace her. Therefore, he desired to put her away secretly. Now, according to the custom of the day at this time, the law of God had been modified and really been lowered. Uh, many of the man-made restrictions, uh, by many man-made restrictions, death by stoning was no longer the normal practice for this kind of a apparent infidelity. 
So what was left for Joseph was for him to institute openly a lawsuit, in essence, against uh, uh, Mary and her family and divorce her and make her a public spectacle, or he could, without any public judicial procedure, simply in private hand her a bill of divorce with a, a witness present. And this is what Joseph decided that he was going to do. Not wanting to disgrace her, he made up his mind to put her away secretly. So he wasn't going to make her a public spectacle. Uh, he wasn't going to publicly shame her. He wasn't going to attempt to bring her to open trial. He wasn't going to try to convict her in front of uh, uh, witnesses and publicly then ruin her reputation. He was just going to simply, quietly write her a private bill of divorce uh, and then just walk away. So when you see that and you understand that, you have to realize that Joseph is choosing against his heart. He's choosing against his heart. He's choosing to do what the law requires. He's choosing to obey the righteous standard of God instead of giving in to his personal love for Mary. Again, that describes Joseph as a righteous man, a really remarkable man, a man who, again, wants to elevate the righteousness of God. Verse 20, But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary of your wife as your wife, for that which has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph's mulling over what he should do. He knows what he should do, but it's difficult for him to do that. So he falls asleep. He's tossing and turning, as you would think. He's disturbed in his mind over the distasteful decision he knows he has to take, uh, undertake, but he has a dream. It's not an ordinary dream. It's not a dream like you and I have. I don't know. Probably have some pretty wild ones that kind of meander around all over the place. Sometimes they don't make a bit of sense. But somehow this dream turns into reality. And dreams often appear in the early part of the book of Matthew uh, with supernatural significance. There's five different references to God speaking uh, to people in dreams. So again, this is a supernatural event. Supernatural event at the birth of uh, Zacharias' son, uh, 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 John the Baptist, a supernatural event, obviously at the birth of Christ, another supernatural intervention here. Right? Joseph falls asleep, so he's asleep, he's in a restless state, and God comes and speaks with him through a messenger. When he had considered this, again, verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, the angel here is not named. There are only three angels named in the entire, uh, uh, in all of the Bible. Lucifer, who fell and became Satan. Michael, who is the archangel, called an archangel. He's the one who's the head of the holy angels and seen as the protector of Israel. And then Gabriel. And Gabriel is always seen in the Bible as the messenger of God, the one who delivers messages of God's purposes, and he's the one who's always entrusted with important messages uh, to deliver. So perhaps it was uh, he who appeared to Joseph. We're not told specifically. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now this is the second time, and just what are we, about 20 verses in here, the second time in the book of Matthew it's reported that Mary is pregnant and it's not <clears throat> by any act of infidelity. It's not by any act of immorality. So that's probably an important, important, uh, important point to, to realize. Second time. Not by any physical contact with any man, but by the Holy Spirit, by supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit himself. You see it again in verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary for your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So the child within Mary's womb is of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, how is that possible? And the answer is, I have no idea. None of us do. I have no idea. All I know is exactly what happened is because that's what God said it happened. 
This is God's explanation of the child that's within Mary. It's not by an act of the human will, but it's an act by divine will. So again, it's something supernatural. That's plainly evident. And it's something supernatural that is plainly evident also by the fact that you realize here at this event, all three members of the Godhead show up. All three members of the Godhead are here at the event. Jesus, obviously, the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and God the Father who not only sent um, uh, his son into the world, but he sent this angel to speak to Joseph to give him an understanding of the origin of the child. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid, son of David. Joseph, it's okay. It's okay for you to take Mary to have her as your wife. She's not broken her pledge, her, her vow to you. Don't hesitate to do what your heart desires. Take her home, let her be your wife, because she's not faithful to you whatsoever. Now, the revelation obviously must have been a couple things at the same time, very startling and yet very comforting, right? And this uh, revelation must have filled Joseph's heart with joy because this confirms not only her faithfulness and her fidelity, her moral integrity to Joseph, but it also confirms the truthfulness of the account that she must have told him about this event concerning the event of her being pregnant. Conversation is obviously not recorded in the text of Scripture, but you'd have to presume somewhere along the way it took place at some point. Most certainly at some point, Mary starts to show signs, right? She's showing uh, physically that she's carrying a child. If not earlier, at some point they had this discussion that she was pregnant. So because she's pregnant and perhaps starting to show signs, she has to give her husband an explanation of what's going on. So again, this is a real-world situation. Try to put yourself in the shoes of these two young kids, if you will. How hard this entire situation, one, must have been for Mary... Because she's got to come to a point and tell Joseph what happened to her and the revelation that she had received earlier concerning the event. So again, try to put yourself in her position. Before the event that we're looking at here in Matthew, Mary also was visited by an angel. So just put a mark right there and we'll come back here just in a second. But turn over to Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke one twenty six. now in the sixth month of the, the angel Gabriel, here he's named, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement. You, you would think, think so, right? I mean, the angel shows up, Hail, uh, favored one. She was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. So it's not an ordinary day here in her life. Verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and over his kingdom and his kingdom will have no end. Again, not exactly your ordinary day. Now, I'm going to stop a couple times and make a tangential run. This is one of them. Just on a side note, last time we talked about the Davidic kingdom, and the message that Gabriel brings here centers on three key words out of the original Davidic covenant, throne, house, and kingdom, all of which are promised to be fulfilled through Jesus, who is the son of David, who is the, uh, the rightful Messiah, king of Israel. So the angel's pronouncement to Mary emphasizes the fact that Jesus has the right to be, or the right to, uh, David's throne, to David's house, and to David's kingdom. 
He's the rightful king. And he right now currently sits at the right hand of the Father. He waits for God's timing, God the Father's timing, for his return to the earth. As we read this morning, he will come and vanquish all of his enemies, restore righteousness, and establish his Davidic kingdom here on the earth that will go throughout eternity, right? After to fulfill all God's promises. Again, when he returns to the earth, he's going to come. He's going to take his rightful throne in Jerusalem. And the land of Jerusalem, the whole land of Israel, is going to be cleansed of all the evil that's had a grip on it and over that region for thousands of years. It's all going to be brought to an end. You say, how do I know that? Well, I've read the Bible, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 18. And words mean something. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor will devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call uh, your wall salvation and your gates praise. I mean, these Davidic promises are going to be carried out in time. The Davidic promise of uh, by God to uh, David, that there will one who will come, uh, that Jesus is that one who will come and sit on David's throne and rule over his house and kingdom. Second Samuel seven sixteen, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There's some people who come and say, well, all this was already fulfilled. There's no king- We're in the kingdom now. There's no literal millennial kingdom coming. It was all fulfilled during uh, the requirements for all the promises were fulfilled during Solomon's reign. But they completely miss the point or the words where God keeps saying things like forever. You look at David's kingdom, the promise is that he will reign forever. There'll be no end to his kingdom. King Jesus will reign over David's throne over a land with borders, real place in time. So again, the Davidic covenant is is eternal. It's unconditional. It's going to be fulfilled in the future. It'll be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns to earth and reigns literally from David's throne in Jerusalem. Psalm 89, verse 34, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the the honors of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I'll not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever. His throne is the sun before me. And it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness of the sky is faithful. And one of my favorite words in the Psalms is Selah. Because people go, we don't know what that means. I think it means, what do you think of that? Right? This is what God's going to do. And he puts a little punctuation at the end. What do you think of that? Selah. Right? So that's the story on the backside here. Right? God's going to fulfill his promises just like he said he would. Now go back to the story uh, here in uh, Luke. An angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, do you have found favor with God, verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear son. shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel shows up. Again, the guy who stands in the presence, the angel stands in the presence of God, and he tells Mary, a virgin, that she will be with child without knowing, uh, she will be with child without knowing a man. So again, how is this going to happen? Well, the God of the impossible is going to act. That's how it's going to happen. The power of the Most High is going to come. The Holy Spirit will overshadow this young girl. She'll be with child, and the seed within her will be the seed of God. For that reason, it says, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. It's interesting, in Hebrews 10, verse 5, the writer of this says, when he comes in the world, he says, sacrifices and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. So God has prepared a body for his son who will become incarnate, and that body will grow in the womb of this 
young uh, lady, right? So again, it's no ordinary child. So this spectacular announcement from an angelic being uh, that uh, he, he is coming and he'll be born. He'll have no human father. He'll only have a human mother, Mary. And she really is nothing more than a passive recipient of God's action. He chose her to be the one who would bear the Christ. He chose her to be the mother of the Christ child. She is a passive recipient of God's action. She is not co-redemptrix, as the Roman Catholics try to put her forward. She's the passive recipient of God's actions. And again, as you start unfolding the story, you really see the, the, the wonderful character of her as a young lady. Again, most likely she's a teenager. But you see in her testimony the depth of her trust, the depth of her commitment to God, and you see the fact that she too is a righteous woman. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So again, while she must have been absolutely shocked uh, by the very appearance of the angel Gabriel, she must have also been staggered by the revelation that she, without knowing a man, is going to have a child. Yet she submits herself to God's will, God's word, as a bond slave, a doulos, a servant, a slave. Be it done to me according to your word. So again, she's a remarkable individual. She, too, is accepting God's will upon her life. She submits to God's will, to God's word. She wants to be used for God's purposes, even though real-world situation, folks, uh, even though in, in the real-world situation of the culture, if she's found pregnant without being first married, it's a punishable offense. If not by death, then most certainly by loss of reputation, loss of honor, loss of respect. So, I mean, her life is immediately being upended. Her, her reputation is at stake. She's going to face shame. She's going to face public scandal. But you see the true character of her revealed here and a little bit later on in verse 46. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, the servant, the slave of the Lord. Be it done to me. I'm going to submit my life to you. Do we sing a song that says, take my life and let it be? Right? I mean, do we sing that song? Do we really mean that life? Are we willing to be useful servants of God however he directs providentially and sovereignly in our lives? She was. Drop down to verse 46. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. I stop right there to point out the fact that Mary said she is one who needs a Savior. She's not perfectly holy, right? And she needs a Savior too. She's not sinless, as the Roman Catholics wrongly teach. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for his regard for his humble state of his bond slave, for behold, from this time all generations will call me blessed or count me blessed. She's a godly lady. She's praising God for what God is doing and praising God for how God is using her. So again, at some point in the story, it's only natural to believe uh, she must have come to Joseph, the man she loves, and has to reveal the situation to him. That an angel of the Lord has come to her and told her that she's going to be pregnant and have a baby and be uh, the child inside her will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, which seems to me just like a normal, typical experience in a real-world situation, right? Hey, Joseph, let me tell you, <laughs> you know, crazy thing happened. Tonight. Gabriel showed up, angel from heaven, direct line, came down here and told me all this stuff's going to happen. And I'm sure Joseph immediately said, yeah, I got it, that's cool. Right? No. That's why he's struggling with this stuff. It's absolutely ridiculous. Who hears of this kind of stuff? Where does this thing kind of, kind of thing ever happen? It's never happened before in the entire human history. I mean, this is way beyond the dog ate my homework, right? I mean, this is one, this is a big one, right? In, in the entire 
history of mankind. It's never been heard that a virgin should conceive. So what's Joseph to think? Again, should he believe her? Should he trust her? Again, perhaps she's starting to show. Perhaps she's suffering morning sickness. Maybe she came to him immediately after Gabriel appeared. We just don't know. But at some point, Joseph comes to the realization that she's married, that she's pregnant. He's not the father, yet he loved her. And he's struggling mildly with the situation, as you'd understand, right? So, again, I think we have to deal with the tension, the real-world tension that's behind uh, the story here uh, on what he's going to do. Now, go back to Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 19. That's where this part of the story comes in. <clears throat> and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. So again, as an unbelievable as this whole situation is, as remarkable and unique as the situation in, uh, is, uh, the virgin origin of the child is confirmed. He's going to have one parent. One human parent. Because if he had no human parents, then he wouldn't be a man. He couldn't be a partaker of our flesh and identify with men. Yet on the other hand, if he has two human parents, he could not have avoided the contamination of our sin. So here's a child who's going to be born, uh, a man, fully man, fully God, born of a righteous uh, woman, but one who's yet a sinner. However, he's going to be sinless. Because he's God come in flesh. His deity, again, counseling out humans, humanity's curse. So the angel of the Lord comes and he confirms the reality of the miraculous, and I think this is a better terminology, virgin conception. Virgin conception of this child Mary, who she's carrying. He again affirms Mary's faithfulness, her fidelity, her moral integrity to Joseph. And with the announcement of uh, the angel to Joseph, he confirms the truthfulness of her account that everything she at some point had to tell him is absolutely true concerning this event. So it's a remarkable occasion. It's a joyous occasion, wonderful occasion. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary uh, as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, and she will bear a son. Not Joseph will have a son, but she will bear a son. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sin. You shall cause his, call his name Jesus. Uh, the, the word means uh, Jehovah saves, or Jehovah will certainly save, or Jehovah is salvation. So every time that this young child's name was ch- shouted out uh, when he was a boy, uh, Jesus, the gospel is proclaimed, the fact that God is for men, the fact that God is a saving God, right? That God saves his people from their sins. Every time his voice, every time his name was called out, Jesus. Because that's what God does, God saves. Man can't save. We can't do anything to save ourselves. Only God saves. We can't save uh, ourselves. We can't save anybody else around us. Only God does that. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior beside me. Isaiah 45, 21. I am the Lord. There is no other God beside me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Hosea 13, 4. There is no Savior beside me. Right? So Jesus is that Savior. God come into the world. God is the one who saves. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, I said it this morning, but the Bible says concerning his name, that that name Jesus, that God has highly exalted him. God has bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, you remember what I said? Every 
knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Those that are in heaven on earth and under the earth. You're going to bow willingly or you'll bow against your will, but you will bow because that's the name of Jesus Christ. He is the one who deserves ultimate worship and honor. So the angel tells uh, Joseph that she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And then he says, it is he who will save his people from their sins. He doesn't say he's going to leave their people in their sins. He's going to deliver them from their sins. Tremendous truth. He'll redeem them. He'll bring them to himself. He'll emancipate them from the great evil of sin, from the guilt and the power, the pollution, the punishment, the penalty of sin, and one day from the very presence of sin itself. He will save his people from their sin so they might enjoy new life, a reconciled relationship with God, so they might enjoy true happiness, so they might personally know the the peace of God that transcends understanding. There's a terrible teaching in the church (coughs) that says that uh, Jesus is my Savior, but he doesn't really transform me. Right, because I have the problem. Because from my side, I have to choose Him as Lord before I, I choose to obey Him. So He can save me. I can get out of uh, the punishment of hell. But there's really no internal transformation until I choose to accept Him as Lord. That's a terrible teaching. One, it's completely unbiblical, because you don't get to choose who's the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. I said that this morning. Right? Truth is truth. You don't get to choose what truth is. You either repent and fall down, fall down before it, or, or suffer the consequences of not submitting yourself to it. And the wonderful truth that Jesus saves his people from the sin. He gives us new life, changes us from the inside out. He doesn't want us just to be believers. He wants to be, us to be transformed. Again, we talked about that a little bit this morning. What does it really mean to look like, uh, what does it look like to be a Christian? Somebody who honors God, worships God. Their life is different than it once was. It has to be because the person of the Holy Spirit, according to the new covenant, now dwells within us. Right? Uh, again, those transformational truths, that association, the marriage of God and man together in our heart has to transform us from the inside out. So this is one that's going to save this Jesus, saves people from their sins, doesn't leave them, they're trapped. We struggle with sin, I get that part, but it's a tremendous statement that he saves us from our sins so that we might live triumphant lives. We might live lives of joy and happiness unspeakable in the presence of God, even in a difficult situation around us. Because there's joy forevermore, right? I mean, the world is going to do what the world does. Have you noticed that the world's done a lot of bad things in the history of the world? They continue. Why are we surprised by all the evil that we're seeing in our day? It's the result of fallen hearts. We're living in Romans chapter 1. We're living in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that talks about men not receiving the truth. uh, Therefore, they believe a lie. We're living in Romans number chapter 1 that says we have minds that don't work properly because we've been so affected by sin and reject the truth. If you reject the truth, then God will send a deluding spirit and you won't ever hear the truth. And that's what we're seeing. So here's one who saves us. Here's one who gives us happiness and joy and peace again in the midst of a world that is in rebellion against God. I mean, he's a tremendous savior. He is a tremendous savior. You should call his name Jesus for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Present to them new life. Present them before the Father, fully reconciled, fully full of his righteousness. Verse 22, now all this took place that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet and might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin will be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated means God's with us. Right? Again, all of this is happening to fulfill God's word because God's truthful. You can count on him. Everything he says he's going to do, he's going to do. He brings it to pass. All this took place that what was spoken through the Lord by the prophet might be fulfilled. Now, the prophet's name is not given here, and we know the prophet is uh, Isaiah. It's out of prophecy out of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And we spoke about it way back in uh, uh, part one, uh, but for the context, I just have to uh, review it here because it fits in here. Obviously, it's the main point of the story. 
So this is another tie that Matthew is going to make back to the Old Testament to show again that Jesus fulfills all the requirements of the Old Testament, that he is the rightful king of Israel. He is also Israel's Messiah. Now, the Jewish uh, readers would have understood uh, to a certain extent uh, uh, from the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament promises. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew the prophecies that uh, 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 Isaiah had made. Perhaps not linking it all together, but the Holy Spirit's going to help us link it all together here in the book of Matthew in the New Testament. So the prophecy of Isaiah out of chapter 7 occurs about some 700 years or so before the birth of Christ. In the near context of that story, in the context that's going on right there in Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz is the, uh, the king who's terrified. Rezin, who's the king of Syria, and Pekah, who's the northern, uh, uh, the, the northern king of the split nation of Israel, formed a military alliance against uh, Ahaz, the king of Judah, and, and there's a great threat against the Davidic throne. Uh, Ahaz and Judah have become frightened over this imminent threat. And God, through uh, Isaiah, is informing Ahaz that the invasion and the conspiracy against him is going to fail. Then God offers to authenticate his uh, pronouncement with a miraculous sign, but Ahaz is a wicked man, he's an unbelieving man, and he hypocritically refuses to ask for a sign. So rather than trusting God in the end of the story, Ahaz is going to put his confidence in uh, human allies. He's going to turn to Assyria for help. But God has a promise, and he's making a promise not just to Ahaz, but he's really making it to the royal line of David. It's, it's a promise to protect and fulfill the Davidic covenant. It, it's going to be, from that point future, it's going to be a long time of fulfillment, but length of time doesn't change the reality that what God says he's going to do, he's going to bring to pass, because God keeps his word. So God is speaking. God says, I'm going to give a sign. And again, God's signs are usually, or they're always obviously supernaturally of origin and character, and they're spectacular and fulfillment. Now, most conservative commentators, even rabbinical teachers, would have taken Isaiah 7.14 to be a messianic prophecy. And again says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son will call his name Emmanuel. Liberal theologians, I told you, they like to make a big deal about this over the Hebrew word for virgin, which is Alma. They say the word Alma, the, the word they say doesn't necessarily mean virgin in the strictest sense. It just means a young girl. A young girl who's not married is going to have, a, have a, a child. That's the sign they try to spin and put on it, right? A young girl's going to have a child, name Emmanuel. Well, that's not much of a sign because young girls, I'm sure, have children all the time. And if you're from Southern California, there's a lot of people you've met who are named Emmanuel, right? I mean, it just doesn't, uh, that's not a very good sign. That's not a very good interpretation. And something interesting I told you before, in Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child. She shall conceive and bear a son. Call his name Emmanuel. A couple things. Uh, first of all, the, the proper phraseology is the virgin, not a virgin, but the virgin. There's a definite article both in the Hebrew and the Greek text. So he's not speaking about any young woman, uh, anyone who's a virgin at the time. He's speaking about a specific virgin, the virgin. He has a specific woman in mind. And secondly, where it says the virgin shall conceive, conceive is not a verb, it's an adjective. You say, so what? Well, it's important because verbs describe action or state of something that's happened. Adjectives, on the other hand, describe or modify nouns. Adjectives are words that express the reality of something. So when the text says the virgin shall conceive, he's not saying the virgin will get pregnant because there's nothing again too spectacular about that. But when he says the virgin shall conceive, he's literally saying the pregnant virgin will bear a son. Or literally the already pregnant virgin is bearing a son and calls his name Emmanuel. That's a sign. The already pregnant virgin will bear a son. Now, a pregnant virgin is an impossibility. And again, that's why it's such a great sign. The already pregnant virgin, the virgin who 
bearing a son, you'll call his name Emmanuel, or you'll call his name God with us, El meaning God. And again, the sign is given as a promise to protect the throne of David. And the sign is, again, the virgin is still a virgin, both at the time when she's pregnant and conceives and when she brings forth her son. So again, the sign is quite a sign. The already pregnant virgin will bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So again, God is promising he's going to send his king. He's going to fulfill his word to David. Wicked men can't thwart God's purposes or plans. God's uh, 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 word, once he speaks, he's going to carry out all of his promises. So how's this going to occur? Because a virgin ceases becoming a virgin from being a virgin the first time she experiences any sexual intimacy with a man. Now, it's obvious that a woman can be called a virgin at the time she becomes pregnant, but she can never again be called a virgin during the length of her pregnancy. This virgin remains a virgin throughout her pregnancy because she never had any contact with a man. Again, verse uh, 18 out of Matthew chapter 1, Therefore, before they came together, she was found to be with child. The authorized King James says, she, He knew her not till she had brought forth her son. There's no physical contact between them. And again, the supernatural origin of the child is predicted, proclaimed. Isaiah 9-6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given. Government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government or peace in the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, the baby is no ordinary baby. God's working the plan. Now, again, the people at the time that Masad, that uh, Isaiah writes in uh, chapter 9 or chapter 7 even, may not have understood fully the prophecy, but through the Holy Spirit, we understand that prophecy through the pen of Matthew. So I don't know if I told you to turn there back to Isaiah. I probably didn't tell you that. So if you're Matthew 1, that's where you need to be, Matthew 1, verse 22. And I'll wrap it up. That's to give you hope that the sermon will eventually come to an end. Now, all this took place that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Some people have accused me of speaking for a long time. It's unbelievable. All this took place that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So the virgin, listen, the virgin in Matthew, he uses the Greek word uh, parthenos, parthenos, meaning, here you go, a virgin, a woman who's never had a sexual relationship with a man. So again, all the critics, all the liberal scholars, all the slanders of the Bible try to confuse the issue, try to make the term virgin back in Isaiah seven fourteen mean nothing more than just a young woman because they're trying to take the supernatural element out of the story. They're trying to take the supernatural element out of the word of God. Why? Because they don't believe the Bible. Why? Because they don't want God to rule over them. They don't want to submit their lives to God. They don't want to be held accountable to God, which is crazy because if God is, and he is, and he is the ruler, and he is, and you are going to be accountable to him no matter what. I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe. Just go ahead and step out of the back of that plane at 30,000 feet without your parachute, and we'll come to an answer to that discussion when you hit the ground. Right? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. I mean, over and over again, the story is God is a God of mercy. God is a God of compassion, tender mercy. He wants to save men. He is for the sinner. Unbelief is completely irrational. We're talking about it at lunch. Why did the Jews hate Jesus? 
I mean, if he is who he is, if these guys are really religious individuals, if they really want to honor God, and if God shows up in their presence, why can't they see him? Because they're not interested in God. They're interested in their power. They're interested in keeping their little kingdoms going. In the face of him, Jesus, raising Lazarus from the dead, which was an undeniable fact because everybody known, knew in the whole town that he'd been dead for four days, Jesus raised him from the dead, and the religious leaders want to kill Jesus and Lazarus. That's the irrationality of unbelief. That's the satanic, the proof that Satan is alive and well. Listen, I, I said it earlier. In, in the world that we're watching, you've got to understand, this is a spiritual battle. This is, this is an ideological battle. This is not Republicans versus Democrats. This is truth versus error. And again, it doesn't matter a, a single person in this room who occupies the presidency when you step into eternity. That is not an issue. And to get sucked up into that stuff, while well, I'm all for America and I'm all I'm thankful that we were, I was born here and I think we should protect our freedoms and our liberties as long as we can, you can go to war over any issue you want. And if you don't know the Savior, the moment take your, you take your last breath, you're going to stand before God in judgment. So that's the ultimate issue. I said this morning, the ultimate question of all questions is, who do you think Jesus is? You better get that one right before you get to something else. And it's very easy for us to get sidetracked and sucked up into all of the nonsense that the world is promoting. Have you noticed there's a lot of lies out there? And a lot of promotion of lies? And you just keep telling lies over and over again, and eventually people believe it's truth. Let me tell you the true truth. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And without him, men have no hope. Red, uh, blue, purple, yellow, black and white. All this nonsense that the culture is caught up into. We better get above the fray and not get caught up into it. Because it's not just a fray, it's a sewer. And if we get caught up into it, we're going to miss the point for why we're here. So again, you can go back to these liberal guys saying, well, there's, oh, you know, virgin is all, it just means... Uh, uh, no, uh, 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 young, no, it means, means exactly what it says. It means a virgin. They don't want to believe the Bible. They don't want to submit the Bible. They don't want God to rule over them. However, here in Matthew, we have the commentary of Matthew and the commentary of Matthew through the person of the Holy Spirit who's actually the power behind the pen, and he's saying she was a virgin. Parthenos. Right? That's, that confirms out of, out of Isaiah chapter 7 exactly what it says here. A virgin, a man or a woman who's never known a man physically. So again, Matthew's commentary settles the issue, and God's word always settles the issue. For those who listen to it, submit themselves to it for what it is, it's the word of God. So the reason for the revelation here to Joseph, right, is to, uh, uh, and the, uh, um, the angel expressing to Joseph, it's okay to take Mary as your uh, uh, wife, is to fulfill the word of God, the promises of God. Again, God, in spite of the sinfulness of men, God's promise is never going to change. They're going to be fulfilled. There's going to be one who's going to come and forever sit upon David's throne in time. Just as God promised, he'll ultimately rule over and reign over the entire earth, a renewed earth, a literal physical kingdom that will go into the eternal state where he will rule for eternally. He's the one to be born of the woman. He's the, the one whose name shall be called Emmanuel, which again translated means God with us. Now, that phrase Emmanuel, or that title, really, Emmanuel, it's not a proper name, it is a title. It's a description of who he is. Who he is now, right? This is, a, 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 again, not just a baby, this is God with us, God in the flesh. His earthly name, his physical name, if you will, is Jesus. His divine title is Emmanuel, his divine name. Again, the one whom we call Jesus, God with us, is the same one who has promised. Listen, at the end of the book of Matthew, he says, I will never 
leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you at the end of the age always, right? This is the one who's promised. This is the one who's coming in time to save us. This is the one who's promised to never leave us. You mean even in the midst of a culture all confused and in chaos? Yeah, probably. (laughs) Since he's in charge, since he probably knows exactly what's going on, I would suggest to you, since it's all fulfilling his plans and purposes, which we may not know, and we're not given privy to, but we are given privy to the fact that he's the sovereign, and we can trust him, and we are given uh, commands to worship him, therefore that's what we should do. So what's uh, Joseph's response to all this? And I, you, I sucked you in when I told you, so I can wrap it up, huh? You thought that was true. Sorry. I'm almost there. Verse 24, Joseph arose from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and took her as his wife, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Again, uh, ESV says he knew her not until she'd given birth. Uh, so again, Mary's a virgin when she conceives. She's a, mer- a virgin after she gives birth to this son named Joseph, or Jesus. Jesus, again, Jehovah's salvation. Emmanuel, God with us. He is no ordinary child. He is literally the seed of the woman. Where have you heard that phraseology before? Genesis 3.15. He is literally the seed of the woman. Right? It's interesting. Jeremiah 31, 22. Write this one down. For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman will encompass a man. That's a difficult trans- verse to translate. I looked it up in different translations. But some rabbis interpret Jeremiah 31, 22 as Messiah would have no earthly father. Behold, the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman will encompass a man. Here's one born of the seed of the woman. So again, the Old Testament very clearly predicts the virgin birth. The New Testament confirms the historical reality of the event. Now I'm going to run a real quick tangent here um, to talk about the possibility of a virgin birth from a biological standpoint. I think this is interesting. So again, we have our English language, a word that refers to this, parthenogenesis. It comes from two Greek words, parthenos, meaning virgin, and then genesis, which means the beginning of the origin of so parthenogenesis, to begin from a virgin. There has been some scientific experimentation going on for a long period of time in this area to see if parthenogenic life can be produced. That is, can you produce life without a male being involved? Now, it's been my understanding that there's a certain amount of experiments have been going on for a long time, experiments with honeybees and certain kinds of silkworms and sea urchins and some other kinds of marine, worm, marine worms, that under certain kind of situations, circumstances, like when placed in certain kind of solutions, uh, they can reproduce without a male being involved. I even read someplace that back in the 1940s there was experiments done on rabbits. And supposedly trying to reproduce rabbits without the use of a male doing some kind of experiment on the egg. But those are lower forms of life, right? There's never been a human being born without the help of a male, without the exception of the obvious exception we're talking about here, speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. There's never been discovered, never happened not possible for a human egg to be fertilized without a male seed. But, just for the sake of argument, let's just say hypothetically, somehow it was possible. Hypothetically, somehow you could use an unfertilized egg to reproduce. What would happen? Well, if you took an egg from a woman, right, uh, without male, it would produce only females. And here's why. Because males have both X and a Y chromosome. Females have two X chromosomes, right? The chromosomes carry the hereditary information. Therefore, if you don't have a male in the equation, all you can do is reproduce females. You need a Y chromosome to get the male. 
So if you could do some kind of experimentation on a human egg, all you could ever produce without a male would be a daughter or a female, never a son. Now we're speaking hypothetically here because none of this has ever happened or could it happen. But if by some biological accident, by some biological chance, by some kind of anomaly, somehow a woman could give birth without the introduction of male into the equation, she could never produce anything but a daughter. She could not produce a son. Because it's the man who determines the sex of the child. And if you're a historian, on a really tangential note, you probably, or all the wives of Henry VIII, probably wish they'd known that information back then. right? But that's a different story. If you don't know that, ask later, I'll tell you. It's the man who determines the sex of the child. The only thing that a woman can reproduce would be a female. Mary, however, gives birth without a human father, and she gives birth to a son. No explanation for that, except the nature of the son is determined by God himself. It's the Holy Spirit who produces the male chromosome in Mary, and Emmanuel, God with us, is born. Born of uh, a woman, right? The born God himself, God who becomes a man, right? The already pregnant virgin will bear a son. So the Old Testament clearly affirms and teaches uh, the virgin conception, The uh, New Testament confirms the validity of the historical reality, and to deny anything else is nothing more than an attempt to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. To deny his power, his authority, is nothing more than an attempt to make him nothing more than a man. It's an attack on the Scripture, like I said this morning. So if you deny the virgin birth that's clearly taught in the Scripture, uh, you're not a Christian. Plain, simple, no argument. And we can argue about different other things, but this is one we can't argue about. It undermines the gospel. It undermines the truth, the reality of what God has said to be true. Verse 24, Joseph rose from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took her, took her as his wife, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. I mean, again, the joy that must have filled this man's heart. His Mary, dear Mary, hadn't betrayed him. Again, the joy couldn't be overstated. Joseph willingly obeys what God tells him to do, what God commands him to do through the angel. He obediently brings... Uh, Mary into his home. He publicly acknowledges her as his wife, and he protects her from shame. And he formally legalizes the connection of her son, uh, or of her with uh, the Davidic line again, as he takes her as uh, his wife again. Uh, he bringing the one who brings the legal line as the uh, stepfather, the adopted father of um, Jesus uh, to the table, the legal right to the throne. Joseph arose from his sleep, did what the angel commanded, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to the son. The Bible says, interestingly, that Jesus had other brothers and sisters, right? So after Mary and uh, after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph had normal relationships that are commonly associated with marriage, contrary to what the Roman Catholic teaches of the perpetual virginity of Mary. What a story, huh? The genesis of Jesus Christ. It was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. All three members of the Godhead are there. It's an important, important point in history. He stepped into time so he might identify with us. Perfect God-man so he might die for our, our sins, bear our punishment as our substitute, dying on our place upon Calvary's cross so that he might save us from our sin. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful for this reality, this truth, this amazing story. The hymn writer Wesley says, Offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. 
pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, born that man may no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. What tremendous truth. You sent your son into the world to sick, wicked individuals to heal them, to the demon-possessed to liberate them, to those who are poor in spirit to bless them. And he came, and he cleansed the leper, and he cured the disease, he fed the hungry, and he came, most importantly, to seek and save those who were lost, and we were once part of that. We have only come to a knowledge of the truth because of your kindness. You've opened your eye, our eyes to receive the truth and the reality of who you are, and we bow before you, and we bow before Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the one whom you have sent to save his people from their sins. We give you all honor and praise in Christ's name. Amen.